Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This is our first podcast of 2021. It has to be better than 2020, surely. Vaccines for COVID-19 are on the way. The US is set to inaugurate a new president. The global economy might rebound. But as much as I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, there are parts of the world where things may actually get significantly worse. In fragile countries hit by a combination of COVID-19, war and climate change, places like Yemen, Afghanistan and much of the African Sahel region are now at a dangerous tipping point. They're highlighted in the latest watch list from the International Rescue Committee, which focuses on the plight of the world's refugees. In this episode, I'm joined by David Miliband, the president of the IRC, and we'll be discussing what needs to be done in the world's crisis zones in a new political atmosphere after Brexit and in the twilight of the Trump administration. It's now a decade since David Miliband stepped down after three years as Britain's foreign secretary. Since then, he's not only left politics, he's also left the United Kingdom for New York. But Miliband's job as president of the IRC is still intensely political and diplomatic in nature, requiring him to plunge into multilateral efforts to sort out some of the world's most troubled places. The explosions in Beirut are a shocking reminder of the fragility of human life. Our first thought is for the dead and the families of the injured, including our colleagues, 500 of whom are working across Lebanon to ensure that the victims of the war in Syria are given the help they need. He's still an influential voice in British politics, and there have been major developments on that front this month. Thank you very much, everybody. I want everybody to understand that uh, the, the treaty that I've, I've just signed is, is not the end. It is, it is a new beginning. And I think the beginning of what will be a wonderful relationship between the UK and our friends and partners in the European Union. That was Boris Johnson signing off on the Brexit deal. Miliband was a passionate opponent of Brexit, and many Remainers looked to him for advice and leadership during the four-year struggle between the Leave vote in 2016 and Britain's final departure from the EU. So I started by asking David Miliband about Brexit and what former Remainers, such as himself, should be hoping for now? I think if you're British, you've got to hope that we were wrong in our predictions of the really very, very difficult economic and political circumstances that Britain has placed itself in. And you've got to do everything you can to to think through how does the country overcome the uh, weaknesses that Brexit has already visited on us economically and more particularly politically. I fear that um, the tourniquet of economic, not isolation, but marginalisation of economic cost, of the frictions that are now being introduced, the uncertainties about the regulatory regime that Britain is going to suffer, is going to be a real economic drag anchor on on the British economy, never mind the impact on the people flows that are important too. And the neglect of services in the final deal that was done is really, uh, must be of great concern to anyone who cares about the future of the British economy. So I would say that the the people who said on New Year's Eve, it's a relief to have a deal because any deal is better than no deal, are right. But it's also a moment of real sadness, real concern. And there needs to be really deep thought about how a country... Uh, re-plugs itself into the economic and political 
mainstream of its region, because we know that geography matters economically and politically still. And so I think that underestimating the challenge would be foolish, whether one was for remain or for leave. Uh, What I think is certainly the case is that self-aggrandizement is not going to cut it in the future for Britain. It's got to deal with its domestic problems because if you're weak at home, you're weak abroad. Uh, It's got to fashion an economic, a durable economic, and I would emphasize political relationship with the European Union, some uh, engagement with the European Union. And then Britain has to figure out a global role. And as I think about it, politically, it's got to be a connector and it's got to be a defender. It's got to be connecting different parts of the world and it's got to be a defender of the rules-based order. Now, that's a big agenda and it's a decade or decades plus agenda. Do you see, though, any basis for this um, idea of global Britain that's uh, you know perhaps not advanced much beyond a slogan, but is that a feasible role or is it you know, is the bigger danger, really, that this rules-based order that you talk about is actually breaking down and Britain may find itself out of a defensive block but unable to navigate the, the, the big blocks that it's in between? That's undoubtedly a danger. Any outside government looking at the negotiations between the EU and the UK will realise and understand that Britain was the weaker partner in the negotiations. And so that is going to reverberate for some time to come. But I think that thinking about its global connecting role will take real policy choices on the economic front to make sure that we don't get squeezed between a Chinese regulatory regime, an American regulatory regime, and an European-American and and Chinese. So we've got real work to do. And I think that global Britain at the moment is a slogan, as you say, and it needs to be turned into something substantive. But it's going to take some real effort when the home front is so demanding. And that's what we're seeing across the Western democracies, I think, that the home front is sucking attention and sapping energy. And that is leading to a vacuum, I think, on the global stage. Certainly for the last four or five years, I haven't seen a strong British global role. So to make global Britain mean something is going to take a change of course. Yeah. Well, you talk about the home front sapping energy. And of course, that brings us neatly enough to the United States where you're sitting at the moment. I mean, for those of us who've um, kind of in a way built our worldview on the idea of, of a strong democratic America as a the most powerful force in the world, what's happening now in this current constitutional crisis engineered by the sitting president is pretty shocking. I think Angela Merkel said three or four years ago, we can no longer rely on the United States Do you think that is, bleak as it is, a valid conclusion for America's allies to draw? Well, I think she was speaking to the need to hedge, that Europe is going to have to hedge about the unpredictability of America. And no one can guarantee that the next 20 years aren't going to see a repeat of the last four years. So the the, the hedging is, I think, necessary. Equally, I think it's important to say that the Biden team coming in have some pretty clear short-term tactical moves that can re-establish an American presence in a pretty serious way. Now, they're not in conventional foreign policy areas, but in respect of COVID, in respect of climate change, the world is ready for America to move back into the WHO to put itself alongside China, the European Union, Japan, who've made bold climate change commitments. I think there's also short-term moves 
that the, an incoming Biden administration can make on issues like Yemen, uh, which has not just been a fault of the Trump administration. The misbegotten war in Yemen started in the Obama administration. So in the short term, I think that there are tactical moves that could, I think, be beneficial globally and also not exactly re-establish a United States leadership, but re-establish an American presence. The bigger question, which you've written about, is obviously at a strategic level, if you think about this beyond a year or four years, how is the United States going to be part of a managed global order? And what we know about the Biden team is they don't buy into a Cold War view of their relationship with China. They see the 21st century as one of being what Joe Nye calls competitive rivalry. But they've got to then put flesh on those bones. And that's going to require strategic engagement at multiple tiers, in multiple sectors, and in multiple geographies. And that is a massive task, I think. I mean, you mentioned there the crisis in Yemen. And obviously, in your work as the head of the International Rescue Committee, you look at the plight of refugees and at humanitarian crises all over the world. And your latest uh, publication makes for pretty bleak reading. I mean, things are getting worse, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we're an international humanitarian organization. So we work in war zones uh, like Syria or, or, or Yemen. We work also with internally displaced people in countries suffering from conflict. And we work with refugees who cross borders. And our emergency watch list for 2021 is, is striking in a number of ways. Let me start with, with this. Those 20 countries that we put on our emergency watch list where we are looking to expand our provision, they constitute 10% of the world's population. They have 85% of humanitarian need, 88% of internally displaced, and 84% of refugees. So the concentration of humanitarian crisis in these failing, failed, or fragile states is very, very strong indeed. The drivers of humanitarian crisis are clear. It's conflict. Remember, it's extraordinary, really, if you think about it, across, across our lifetimes. The fact that today there are more extreme poor in Nigeria than in India is an extraordinary state of affairs. Conflict is the biggest driver of extreme poverty today. Um, but also climate change. Uh, seven of the top 10 countries in our watch list uh, register as the most climate change affected on the Notre Dame register of climate-affected countries, and then COVID, which obviously has had a massive impact on livelihoods as well as on, on health provision. And so the picture is getting worse. There's no question about that in 2021. And the crisis isn't just material, it's also political, because the global response is so weak, both at the diplomatic level, but also at the symptomatic level in dealing with famine, now threatened in four countries. And what hope is there of, of actually turning it around? I mean, talking to UN officials, and they were pretty bleak about it. I mean, they don't see much hope for enhanced international cooperation, given the increase in rivalry between the US and China, the distractions of COVID, and so on. Do you see a way around that? Well, there is a way around it. I mean, in a way, if you think about it, the rivalry at one level could lead to a bidding war up rather than down. And certainly one analysis of how the Chinese have shifted their position over the last seven or eight years since the arrival of Xi Jinping is obviously they're playing not just a much more muscular role in their own region, but they're playing a bigger soft power role globally, as well as being now the second largest contributor to UN peacekeeping. In terms of the way forward, I mean, I think that the COVID crisis does show what it means to live in an interconnected world. And so the rational case 
for tending to your neighbor's problems as well as your own problems is overwhelmingly strong. The international economic response to the COVID crisis has been much weaker than the response 12 years ago to the financial uh, crisis. Uh, I don't want to lay everything on the shoulders of an incoming Biden administration. It'd be wrong to see them as just magically coming to the rescue. But I think that there is a prospect of using COVID as the entry point to a different kind of global cooperation. I, I would hope that in healthcare now, and especially in global health security, we can see the next three or four years as being a major push to greater cooperation and greater recognition of our mutual interdependence. If that happens, we can use health to tackle some of the wider questions around poverty and insecurity that we highlight in the watch list. I don't want to put a, a gilded, rose-tinted spectacles uh, on this, but we're paying the price of a global leadership vacuum. And the longer we wait to put that right, the greater the price will be. And one of the problems that you've highlighted particularly is what you call an age of impunity, that leaders can do terrible things and are much less and less likely to be held to account for it. I think this is important. I mean, I've been back to look at the figures on civilian deaths in war. 70% of casualties in war are now civilians. The killings of aid workers, which is rising. And what we're seeing in the war zones around the world that we work, the places of conflict, is that the hard-won gains after the Second World War of establishing norms of war that protected civilians are being flouted. The laws and the norms are being flouted. When the Saudi-led coalition bombs a coachload of children in northern Yemen, when the Assad regime and its backers bombs International Rescue Committee staff who are in an ambulance in northwest Syria, those are war crimes. And they are taking place without accountability. And the definition of impunity is that decisions are taken without accountability. It's power without responsibility, the refuge of the harlot throughout the ages. And this fear I have of an age of impunity is at the international level, but it's also obviously at the, the national level too. I mean, the University of Gothenburg does a register called the Varieties of Democracy Register. It says we're living through a third wave of autocratization. Autocratization isn't a very easy to digest word, but what it means is that democracy is in retreat. And whether you look at their data or Freedom House, the NGO or the Economist Intelligence Unit, they'll show you that the democratization agenda is really stuck at 50% of the world's countries and population. And 2019 was the first year in which the GDP of autocratic countries was greater than the GDP of democratic countries for 100 years. Whether or not an agenda of impunity that promises efficiency and strongman leadership is going to win the day, my own view is that it's a brittle form of leadership and that it carries enormous risk. But accountability is time-consuming and inclusive government is time-consuming. And we can see the perils of this um, contest between accountability and impunity is defining at the international level for the people who we try to serve. Frankly, if you're trying to tackle malnutrition in Yemen, the fact that there's increased levels of bombing just last weekend makes life all but impossible to, to, to achieve that, how much aid you're getting in. There's a big question, probably too big a question to try and finish the interview off with, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, which is, you talk about this age of impunity and the erosion of accountability, which makes me think of the period when you and Tony Blair were in power, and you were both trying to, in a sense, spread the idea that national sovereignty was no longer absolute, that you would establish things like the International Criminal Court 
and establish international norms, the responsibility to protect was a big idea then. Do you think, in retrospect, you overreached, the world wasn't ready for those ideas, or actually, is there no alternative? How do you think about those ideas 10 years on as they're in such apparent trouble? Well, that's a great question. I think it's the question. Because in 1962, John Kennedy, I mean, it goes back way before me, or Tony Blair. In, in 1962, John Kennedy, on Independence Day, July the 4th, he went to Philadelphia and he proclaimed a declaration of interdependence. And he set out an argument that says, effectively, you've got to share sovereignty if you want to control the, the events of the modern world. Now, I think that in an age of hyper-connected countries and peoples, that agenda becomes more important. Equally, it's obviously wrong to say that the nation state is too big for the small problems and too small for the big problems, which famously was the Daniel Bell book in the 1970s. And what I was certainly trying to do in the 2000s, I went to China actually in 2008 and talked about responsible sovereignty. I was trying to play into the Bob Zelik idea of the responsible stakeholder, but take it into your question about sovereignty. And uh, there's no question that it's been set back significantly. I mean, the assertion of national interest at the expense of supranational cooperation has been very significant in the last decade, emblematically uh, Brexit, but in other areas too. It's interesting that President Trump should have alighted on sovereignty as the foundation of his successive speeches to the UN to tell them what they were doing wrong. Now, my own view is that the, and maybe I would say this, but the idea has been un, of, of uh, shared sovereignty has been undermined by policy mistakes that don't disprove that the idea was right. Policy mistakes in foreign policy, but also by the global financial crisis. And I think the tragedy today is that we're paying the price of believing that we can solve problems within our own borders without tackling problems that exist beyond our borders. And so I would flip your question from being a historical one that looks back a decade to being a prospective one that looks forward a decade and says, unless we can find a way to build shared responsibility in an interdependent world, then we're going to find it more and more difficult to address the problems that exist not just in the global commons, but then invade from the global commons into our own societies. Okay, David, well, we'll have to leave you there for now, but kind of interesting agenda for not just the year ahead, but the next few years ahead. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Gideon. That was David Miliband ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week and throughout the year. If you've enjoyed the episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps. 